Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and today we have a very interesting guest. We have retired first grade detective Bill Ryan of the Arson and Explosion Squad. And most police departments don't have an Arson and Explosion Squad because maybe just the largest cities do. But New York City, of course, being the largest police department in, in the world, has an Arson Explosion Squad. And they investigate just what it says, fires and explosions. And um, Bill Ryan had a very eclectic career. He uh, worked in plain clothes in the citywide street crime unit. Uh, he went into the uh, narcotics and he had a, a, a plethora, I love that word, of investigative experience. And without further ado, uh, I'd all like to welcome um, Bill Ryan. Good morning. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And I also forgot to mention that he has a private investigative firm right now. Called, what is it? It's called William Ryan and Associates? It's actually Ryan Investigative Group. Ryan Investigative Group. He's probably the group, so don't let him fool you. <laughs> well, the way I'm gaining weight, I, I could be the group. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I think a lot of people would like to know is that what, what you know, Austin Explosion, what... What is the training for that? How, how do you get prepared to become an Austin and explosion investigator? That's an excellent question, Bill. You know, um, you know people, a lot of people don't even know arson explosion exists. It's actually one of the oldest uh, details in the department. It was before the terrorist task force uh, and before a lot of other squads, there was an arson and explosion squad. Um, when I first joined the squad in 93, um, we were more bureau type investigators, you know, the fire marshals would go out and say, this is an arson. They'd send us the results and we would do the follow-up investigation. And uh, just as I had gotten there, our, our former uh, commanding officer, Jerry Sheehan, uh, wanted to get us training. And, you know, there's always a little bit of the battle of the badges. You know, the, uh, the fire marshals didn't want us, well, the chief fire marshal at the time didn't want us going to their origin and cause schools. And it's kind of funny because the NYPD actually trains the fire marshals in law and justification and firearms. So, it's, you know, it's very, you know, we're all the same employer, you know, the city of New York, but they weren't happy with that. So what ended up happening was uh, Jerry got us to go to the uh, New York State Fire Academy in Montauk Falls, New York, and ended up going there. And uh, you're up there for a week. Uh, you have the training on how to determine origin and cause. It's a tested class. You go in, great instructors, and it's great because you meet investigators uh, from all over New York State. We had a few uh, Canadians uh, there, a couple guys from Rhode Island. Hey. And it was real interesting. Hey. <laughs> Canadians, hey. <laughs> yeah, Canadians, hey. And uh, I asked him, do you, do you have the Dudley Do-Right suit at all? He goes, no, we, we don't wear that. Yeah. <laughs> a little disappointed. But um, that that was where we went. And when you go there for a period of time and you get your training and then uh, you have to submit uh, to the state uh, your list of fires and what you did on it. And uh, you basically send it to them and they go over it. And if they feel you've qualified for it, you become what's a, a level one fire investigator, which is kind of step one. And then, you know, you can keep going on and uh, becoming a level two. And there's a, there's a tremendous amount of courses, but it's also, uh, and this is a tribute to, uh, you know, the, the commitment the NYPD had a training, you know, they, they would send us to all the federal schools for uh, arson and bombings investigations and it was really great. It was a little bit, you know, of a, a thing with the marshals where a lot of times we actually had better, uh, I'll call them academic credentials than, than they did because most of them just had their 
vast experience in the fire department. And some of them went to these classes too, but most of the guys in A&E had, had better fire training and there was, you know, and they always thought we were going to take them over. I'm like, you know, we're, we're 12 guys. We're not taking over anything. But you know something, when you get grilled on the stand by a uh, savvy defense attorney, you want to have the education and the background to be able to uh, speak in an authoritarian way about your, you know, your topic or your area of expertise. You do. And, you know, it, it's it's funny. One of the uh, cracks Jerry Sheen used to tell us all the time, our former CEO, is that uh, what's an expert? And he said, a guy 50 miles from home with a slideshow. Uh, you know, having a real uh, expertise and being able to articulate that expertise on the stand, which is the key. You know, you can go up and hand him your, uh, your resume, or your CV, but some guys are just stiff on the stand and they can't really, uh, they've got the knowledge here. They just can't put it out in front of uh, 12 people. And, and um, you know, that, that that's, that's a problem a lot of times. I, I've got a performing background. I'm, I'm pretty good on the stand. So I enjoyed it. But, um, you, you know, it, it's, it's still something you have to know what you're talking about because if not, uh, they can use your information to try to overturn what, the other guy did, you know, and well, he says it's an apple and you're saying it's an orange. You know, well, part, you know, part of being a good um, uh, investigator on the stand is to know where the um, inquisitor is going, like anticipatory questions. You understand the process. So you understand where the attorney who's grilling you, where that person is going. So you don't trip yourself up when you can think two steps ahead where he's trying to get what, what he's trying to get you to say for example. absolutely you know you know the old bit you know when you think you're doing uh, when you're when your attack is going that well sometimes it's a trap you know he's looking down that that alley and then when you get to the end of it he's he's waiting for you um but that's like you know with with any investigation whether it's you know something forensic or or just basic street cop stuff you know you you have to know your case and uh You've got to know your weaknesses and you've got to make sure that the DA knows the weaknesses in your case. You know, a lot of times guys get up on the stand and they expect the prosecutor to save them or the attorney in the civil matter to save them. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you're up there on your own. It's, it's your credibility. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I, I did while I was still a cop is I, I used to teach interview and interrogation and courtroom testimony at the police academy. And I used to tell guys, you know, I'll go down to Center Street at the sign-in room and everybody's reading, uh, you know, the sports section or, uh, you know, they're talking to their girlfriends or their wives on the phone, but they haven't even, you know, gone over their own arrest report and memo book. And I said, the guy's going to question you. He's been up all night preparing, waiting for you to do that. Right, right. And, uh, you know, you, you've got to know your stuff, you know, no matter what it is. If it's something as, as complicated as a fire or a bombing case or, you know, something as, as, as uh, pedestrian as like a pickup uh, baseball bat robbery, you know, I mean. Well, you know, some of the one of the things that um, people that aren't in uh, the police world don't understand is that you don't just become a great detective. There's some steps. There's preparation for that, and some of the preparation for that, of course, is to be a good police officer. Absolutely, police officers do investigations. They you know, all the time. Yeah, they go to a scene, and even to take a report or to interview someone is part of it being an investigator, not specifically giving that title investigator, but you do a lot of investigations as a police officer. So to be a good police officer, then the natural progression, it used to be uh, to go into anti-crime in the, at the precinct level. 
And that's where a lot of the, some of the best cops, best detectives came from was anti-crime and, of course, citywide uh, anti-crime, street crime. Yeah, baby. You were, yeah, I was in street crime also. As was I. Yeah. You were exposed to some unbelievable crimes on the street that begged out for not just good street police work, but good investigation in the follow-up. And that's how, you know, people cut their teeth and became good investigators. And that's the best anti-crime cops, in my mind, became uh, some of the best detectives. Yeah, and you know, it's funny when um, when we talk about, you know, and this is this is not an insult that the fire marshals, I have no axe to grind with them. Uh, although they have the axe, maybe they'll grind it. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you become a fire marshal, unlike a detective, a detective, as you know, is a discretionary rank. A fire marshal is a civil service title. They take examinations, they pass them. And uh, after they pass, they go to the uh, training at, at the fire academy on uh, Randall's Island. I'm sorry, Randall's Island, New York. Then they assign them to a fire base when they work with a senior guy for a while. And then they're out there on their own. So, I mean, a lot of them are very good at going into a scene and saying, here's how the fire started. Here's where it started. Here's the evidence. But a lot of times they're a little light on uh, the police work because they haven't done that. You know, where, where you and I are running around in a radio car answering jobs and filling out 61s and talking to witnesses, you know, they were on the back of a truck putting out fires and saving lives. So it's a different, they've got a different learning curve, you know, and uh, it, it's, and, you know, so, some of the fire marshals are actually retired cops or guys who rolled over, but um, it, it does make a difference. And like I said, there's, there's some that are amazing. Some fire marshals, I think, are, are great. And, you know, and some, uh, they're great at this part of the job, but a little less great at the other side of the job. Well, you know, knowing what to look for, and I always, um, I was never great. I was good at, really good at the police part of doing my job, you know, because I was an anti-crime guy for six and a half years, and uh, once as a cop and as a sergeant. And, you know, I, I became... Um, a, a good investigator, but I was never great at the crime scene part of it. And I always thought that was the scientific part and how great the New York City Police Department has a crime scene unit that will do all that work for you. But then I understood later in my career that to, to put a really good case together, you needed to really understand what crime scene was doing so that you could guide them in the collection of evidence of what may have happened at the scene of a homicide, what may have happened at the scene of an assault, because it's not good enough to just let them come in and take control of the scene. You have to tell them or advise them as what do you think occurred. You know, as the investigative detective, you know, you use the word, you know, the scene, you know, ultimately, if you're the catching detective, it's your scene. Right. I mean, there may be the brass and crime scene and a hundred other people there, but if you're the one, you know, catching, it's your case. And, you know, you can't assume somebody did something on a case. You can't, uh, you know, if there's certain things that you want done, ask. You know, I mean, I, I've never, I've always had a great relationship with the guys in crime scene. You know, you ask them to do it, they'll, they'll, they're happy to do it for you. But, you know, don't, you know, don't just go, all right, you guys got the scene, I'm leaving, I'm going to go do an interview and say, why, why, why wasn't this done? No, no, you got to do the walkthrough with them. You got to find out uh, through talking to them what they think happened. And, you know, come up, because it can be in the beginning uh, at a homicide crime scene, a hypothesis, you know, an educated guess as to what occurred, you know, 
And, you know, you use Absolutely. science to determine the best course of action and what, you know, we think occurred, you know. Yeah, and sometimes, especially when you do specialized investigations like we do, you know, there may be things at the scene that everyone's looking at that I don't think is, that maybe they won't think is important in the traditional crime scene sense, but it's invaluable to me. So, hey, get pictures of this, uh, you know, let's seize that. Let's, you know, that, that that's really important. And, and you know, it's not always, you know, the, uh, the, the bullet or the, uh, the blood stain or, or uh, you know, some of the things that we, we more traditionally see as police officers. I mean, there's there's been things in cases like pictures on the wall, things that I want, or, uh, you know, things maybe the kid had on his desk, books that he was looking at back when people looked at books instead of uh, the internet. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, that could get passed over uh, if you don't know what to look. I mean, I've had devices made out of odd things. And like, you know, was that significant? Like one guy was using a milk container for something. Would it have been significant? Not unless I said, hey, that's important to me. Get pictures of that. Let's seize these things and get them printed. Or, um, you know, even the guy like uh, Edward Leary, who uh, you probably remember, he was the guy that uh, tried to hold the city hostage by setting off incendiary devices on the subways. Right. Went and did the search of his house uh, up in uh, Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn. You know, uh, he had all these mason jars and pottery jars and things. And people were like, why are you seizing that? I said, because that's what the original devices were made out of, you know, and, and we want to show that he had access to these things. People are like, oh, you're seizing jars. I've got jars. Yes, but if you've got the guys making bombs, and, you know, most of the guys make bombs out of what's what's handy. Uh, you know. But you're also thinking way ahead when this case goes to trial and show the jury that he collected these jars for a very specific reason. Exactly. And, you know, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words or a live a physical yeah. piece of evidence. The actual, yeah, the actual item that you yeah. can bring and a go, physical uh -huh. piece of evidence says a lot of things. You know, I wanted to mention one thing, which I, I would probably be remiss, and I know you didn't, you weren't in Austin Explosion at the time, because I believe it happened in 1990. And of course, that was one of the biggest uh, Austins in the history of the city, which was the Happy Land. Happy Land. Fire. And yeah, I, I wasn't there for that. I was, I was in Narcox at the time. Right, that was in 1990, I believe, because I had just made Sergeant. And uh, one of the duties that they gave us when we hit the street was every night we had to visit every social club. Every social the, club, yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden they discovered there were social clubs that weren't licensed in the city. You want to just uh, talk a little about Happy Land and about what occurred? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I wasn't there. I was in Brooklyn North uh, TNT when uh, – when Happy Land occurred, but I mean, basically what happened was, uh, it, it was a nightclub. It had, you know, one way in, one way out. And, uh, without getting too much into it, you had a guy who, uh, had his girlfriend upstairs or who he thought it was his girlfriend and the bouncers kicked him out because he was misbehaving. And he went and, you know, got a couple of bucks worth of gasoline and he, he set fire to the place. And, uh, you know, 86 people died in that and in this big fire. But what's interesting is, you know, nobody burned in this fire. Everybody died uh, of asphyxiation. You know, people were trampled getting out. Um, so even though, yes, it was a fire, it was an arson. You know, nobody uh, nobody died from, from burns. Everybody died from either smoke or getting trampled on. Isn't that the case in most fires, that most people don't die from the fire? They die from smoke inhalation. Yeah. Because, you know, it takes nothing. I mean, there's, there's so many 
toxins that get released in a fire. You know, you you think about, uh, you know, your own house. I mean, just how many plastic things. And when, when these plastic things, uh, you know, get, get heated and start melting and matches and everything, you know, they give off a lot of toxic chemicals. And, uh, you know, you get a good couple of lungfuls of that, you know, it's, it's going to take you down. And, and eventually, you know, you're, you're going to pass away from it unless you can get out of there. But uh, that's true. Most people who die in fires die from, from the smoke or the asphyxiation of the things from the smoke. I mean, that was a, uh, a horrendous, horrendous case, you know, uh, 86 people dying. It's uh, yeah, it was almost, you know, it's funny. We, um, I'm not going to get too, too much into it, but um, we came about that close to having a second one uh, in Astoria. Uh, it wasn't my case. It was uh, one of my teammates, Kevin McManus, uh, who's retired now. And uh, it was a Greek club and, uh, you know, almost the same thing happened and it got thwarted and it didn't end up happening. But, uh, you know, pretty, pretty close to having, you know, Happy Land Part 2 because it, it takes nothing to do these things. I mean, you know, a couple yeah. of bucks of gas. And uh, well, that's it. It's inexcusable to have uh, one entrance, one exit. You know, you have to have multiple uh, areas of escape in any, especially a club. You know, well, you, I mean, you're supposed to. I mean, you know, there are laws that regulate this, but you know, it's it's like the old scene from Casablanca. You know, uh, you know, I'm shocked there's gambling going on. It's like <laughs> you know, I'm shocked there's 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 illegal social, social clubs. <laughs> well, you've seen clubs that'll that'll um, uh, chain the, the the doors. You know, no, <laughs> I mean that's like a hundred percent no no, but they do it. You know, yeah, I believe me, it's. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's just by the grace of God that, that a lot more of these things don't happen. But, uh, of course, now in the city, you know, nobody can get into clubs or anything, and uh, everything's closed down. So, um, well, one of the, you know, one of the things that uh, they've done in the last probably 10, 15 years is large clubs um, at, the, at the door, they scan your license. And most yeah. of these clubs, if you don't have a license, you're not getting in. And that's how strict the security's gotten, and I think that's great. Because well, I mean, a lot of that came from, um, you know, the, 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 you remember the uh, young woman that was, uh, she was the John Jay student who was killed by uh, one of the bouncers. And, and met Sengin, yes. Yeah, and uh, when that happened, not to talk too much about it, but, you know, there was a whole revamping of, of security guard. I mean, you know, it's funny, but in New York State, I think it was 1986, where they actually created the Security Guard Act, where you actually had to be uh, somehow licensed and, fingerprint thing. I mean, before that, you know, anybody could just, you know, I'm a security guard and just go in. And these yeah, I'm, I work out at uh, Gold's Gym. I'm a good security guard, right? Or, I mean, just think that restaurant, The Falls, where um, Emet Sanguin was sort of kidnapped from, hired a serial rapist as their bouncer. No, nothing wrong I with that. it at all. A serial rapist they hired as the bouncer. Yeah, I mean, you think about what a great yeah, uh, you know, if you're that type of a predator, you know, you've got young women going into clubs, they're drinking, they trust you a little bit because of the bouncer, get me a cab, you know, it's, uh, you know. And do you know what the connection the restaurant, uh, the Falls had with another infamous bar on the Upper East Side? I don't. Dorian's Red Hand. Dorian's. Which, which was the last bar that Jennifer Levin and Robert Chambers were in prior to him murdering her. The father owned Dorian's Red Hand and the son owned The Falls. I don't know the last <laughs> name, but I'm just, there's sort of an infamous connection there, you know. 
You can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. Uh, Actually, I'm a writer. I can, but <laughs> make it up. You know, so I, I wanted to, um, one of your cases, I, I want to see if I can share the screen here. I'm not good at this stuff. So let's see if we can do it. But um, there's a serial arsonist case. Yeah, that was my first one. That was. Right. Uh, I'm going to play it right now. His request for money. He would have an argument with his mother. He would uh, come down and, and initiate arsons on people who may have turned him down for funds at one time or another in the area. Indeed, it seems the arsons at clearly Jewish targets were not biased crimes at all. He has a great affinity to the Jewish community. In fact, when he would set these fires, uh, he frequently wear a, uh, a yarmulke, uh, just out of whatever persuasion that provided him with. Peter Roth is the vice president of one of the synagogues hit. So I was expecting that when they caught the guy, he'd be some kind of like hardcore neo-Nazi type. And I saw this guy when they brought him out today. He just looks like a real sad schlemiel-y. <laughs> schlemiel, I love that word. <laughs> remove uh, that fear of, of bias that we in our community have a situation where people are violent because of a bias situation. If this was eliminated, it certainly makes us feel very, very much more comfortable. And that was Rabbi Reiner. He had given money to Bebek in the past. When he stopped giving money, Bebek allegedly began to harass the rabbi. Police investigating that harassment uh, elicited Bebek's confession for the arsons today. Reporting live in Far Rockaway, Jim Dolan, Channel 7, I would just need. Sam Wellspoke for setting fires at Jewish institutions in Rockaway, but they say bias was not the motive. They described the suspect, 39-year-old Brian Bebek, as a... That's me, young and thin. <laughs> More hair, dark hair, and uh, look at that. Look at that. Porno mustache. We got that. Latest plays was this past weekend at a synagogue. Police believe Bibic may have may be responsible for as many as 16 arson fires. A fast-moving fire say they have caught the man to spread hate and fear by setting synagogues on fire. Glenn Thompson is live right now in Rockaway with the very latest on this story for us, Glenn. Well, Connie, this historic synagogue was one of the last to be torched back in April. It was also one of the first to be torched in July of last year. And you can see some of the extensive damage that's been done here. Well, tonight, an intensive arson investigation has finally paid off, and police say they have their man. This is the arsonist who's terrorized the Jewish <clears throat> community in Rockland, <clears throat> God, was I ever that young? Oh, my God. James Bevick has been charged in connection with... What we're seeing on the screen is the walkout with the perp for you, those that are just listening to this uh, and not seeing the video. He's being charged with seven counts each of arson in the third degree and reckless endangerment in the first degree and one count of attempted arson in the third degree. Bevick was arrested at his mother's Brooklyn home where he admitted to detectives that he set the fires. Police say they received their biggest break this week when they learned that Bevick had been making harassing phone calls to one of the synagogues and demanding money. They say Bevick frequently was given handouts from several synagogues. He made uh, several hundred dollars a week, basically, by soliciting funds from the institutions here. But occasionally he would be turned down. When he did, and he had a disagreement with his mother, he would vent his disagreement by setting these fires. Rabbi Jacob Reiner received more than a hundred harassing calls from Bevin. He was angry because we didn't have money available for him. And that's the way he reacted in anger for the rest of called the office, he called my home, it was one night that I was never sleep. Detectives say that despite outward appearances, this wasn't a bias crime. 
They say, in fact, Bebek may have had a Jewish father and was sympathetic to Jews. They say he even wore a yarmulke while setting the fires. While his motives may not be clear, the damage is very apparent. On one hand, very sad, everybody disturbed, but on the other hand, it did give a certain flourishment to the community in its determination to survive and to carry on. Now, Bebek now faces up to 15 years in prison on each of the arsons. Well, Bill, now that we saw you, you did once have brown hair and uh, <laughs> many, many years. Well, I can still get it for you. I mean, I can hit the bathroom and uh, you know. <laughs> the Grecian formula. For Whatever you, you need. <laughs> so you, you want to comment on that case? Or? Yeah, you know, it's um, when I first got to a and &E, I got there in uh, January of, of 93. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of had a... a really kind of remarkable beginning because about the third or fourth case I ended up getting was the 93 Trade Center bombing. And uh, so literally your, your, your rookie season, you're, you're playing in the Super Bowl. Um, and we were just tied up with that for so long. And I hadn't gone to the fire schools yet. And, uh, you know, a &E was only about a dozen detectives, two sergeants and a lieutenant. So, you know, it wasn't, it's not that big of a squad that covers the entire city. And, uh, when this case had come in, I, I had never done a serial case. Uh, I don't think any of the guys that I was working with at the time had, had done a serial case. And this was like July uh, 12th of 1994. We had the fire to uh, Durakimona, which is one of the, it's on Beach 67th Street. And it's like that building in the middle of all the elephant grass. And it's like, it's like a little shul on the prairie. Uh, there's nothing around it. Um, it's one of the oldest synagogues uh, in the country. And, uh, he did a fire in the back of the place, knocked out a lot of damage, but it was still somewhat repairable. The thing is, the congregation was old people. that wasn't there that often. And while we're working on that, uh, the fire marshals come over to us and go, hey, you know, while this place was burning, uh, down in the 100th Precinct, uh, there was a fire to a Jewish hotel, the uh, Washington Irving Hotel. And... Uh, you know, we started realizing that we had the same guy uh, or possibly the same guy because of the way they were done. And then uh, some detectives from, at the time, it was the bias investigating unit. Now it's the hate crime unit. Uh, one of the detectives there, Edward Schaffberg, who eventually became my partner in arson, uh, he goes, hey, uh, you know, these fires have been going on in Long Island. Ed was a, a volunteer fireman uh, in, in uh, one of the Long Island departments. Mm -hmm. goes, you know, this has been going on in Atlantic Beach, and Long Beach for, I think at the time it was at least a year, similar fires. So it looked like our, our arsonist was a, a Long Island guy now spreading through the peninsula and now coming into Queens and becoming our headache. And, uh, you know, now you're sitting there and go, okay, well, you know, how do I do this? And uh, I always said I became the, uh, the serial guy because nobody else wanted the job. Could you speak to the... Um the personality traits of a uh, serial arsonist? Do they have a certain type of um, personality? Like, you know, you know, they talk about with serial killers, organized and disorganized offenders. Is certain personalities also true with arsonists, serial arsonists? Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's different types of serial arsonists and people do serial arsons for, for different reasons. Um, you know, I, I'd spent some time talking to a guy named Carl England, who was the uh, ATF profiler. And, uh, you know, from, from what I'm, I'm, I'm told by their research, and this is their research, I don't want to look like I'm taking credit for it, but 
uh, a pattern arson, serial arson guy, uh, his profile is almost the same as that of a, a serial sex offender. And uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I, he was telling me that uh, I think there's rarely been a, a serial murder or serial uh, homicide uh, where the guy wasn't already a, a serial arsonist. Uh, Berkowitz was an arsonist. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't go through a litany of names, but, um, you know, people do it for different reasons. You know, um, some guys are, are, are um, you, know, you get a lot of security guards uh, and, 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 you know, cops and firefighters who've become uh, arsonists because they want to play the hero. Um, and I think they're, they're addicted to, you know, the, you know, look how great I am, look at what I did. Um, you know, is there a real fire setting behavior, like a pyromania? I mean, I, I just don't think that the, the, the research has been that inclusive. I mean, so, some things I've read, you know, uh, from old studies talked about, you know, the correlation between bedwetting and, and arsonist, you know, and the studies really haven't been that great. Um, well, they like to uh, sort of try to fit things in a neat container, like a lot of serial killers, when they do research on them, they found out that they like to kill animals, small animals when they were a child, you know, and that's sort of a psychological, um, you know, thing that they that they do. And uh, I, I'm sure arsonists have other traits that, you know, similar to what serial killers have. Mm -hmm.